Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. This morning, we're in John chapter 20 for our Bible study. So uh, just tell you that so you can turn there and find your place. If you're here and you need a Bible, uh, get the attention of one of the ushers that are making their way up and down so that you can follow along with us. If you're visiting with us this morning, you're visiting somebody from out of town and this is your first time here, uh, I'd just like to welcome you and thank you for coming. And I, I hope that the Lord would speak to you this morning. And, uh, and I believe that he has a message, something that he wants to say. We have been inundated for the past, uh, what, month with the nativity, with the shepherds, with the angels, with the stable, you know. Uh, this morning, I want to look at something way on the other end uh, of Jesus' ministry and uh, prepare us for what's coming in the new year. So if I could ask you to please pray with me as we begin. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we just settle our hearts and we come before you. And we want to thank you, God, for who you are. Uh, thank you that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you, Lord, that you're the God who knows the end from the beginning. That you're the one who knows all of our days, our breaths, uh, the plans that you have. You know where we, we stand right now. And, Lord, you're able to do that on such an individual level. And so we just want to invite you in here this morning. We pray for your presence. We ask, Lord, for your peace. We pray, Lord, that there would be a sense uh, that you're here right among us right now. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the clarity to be able to hear your voice. I pray that your spirit would open up the word and make it uh, live, that we might really understand uh, and know you through it, Lord. So please uh, take the truth that we have here in front of us today, and we ask you, Lord, that you would please speak to us through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for those of you that may be here this morning and you're new to the Christian faith or maybe even brand new, I don't want to lose you at the very beginning. And so just by way of, of setting the stage, the chapter that's before us, John chapter 20, is way at the end of the, the gospel account or the, the testimony really of the earthly life of Jesus Christ. Uh, he has um, ra- grown up raised up. He has served in a ministry that captured the attention uh, of the nation and and really much of the Roman Empire. At the time, he had done miracles and given teachings uh, and made the the profession that he was the Messiah. He had been believed on them, his disciples, as the Savior. And now he has been crucified on a Roman cross and put into a grave, leaving the whole multitude of those who had encountered him for all of those years confused shaken and troubled and really that's where we begin as we look uh, if you would with me at verse 1 of John chapter 20 it says now the first day of the week Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and she saw and I want you to mark that because it's a theme that carries throughout this entire chapter we're going to see what everyone saw as they went through this it says that she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb so she ran and she came to simon peter and to the other disciple whom jesus loved that's john the author of the book he didn't want to refer to himself by name so he calls himself uh, by those words and she said to them They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And I want you to just mark that in your mind, those words, laid him, because it's the first wrong assumption that's made in this chapter, is that Mary just assumes uh, that Jesus is still dead. 
I, I guess that's a safe assumption, being that most people that are born do die, and that she had seen Jesus dead, uh, but it, nevertheless, it's an assumption that he uh, is laid somewhere else. So Peter, therefore, went out, and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb, so they ran both together, Peter and John, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. So John points out that he's a more gifted runner than Peter. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw. So now John sees something. He saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. He was a faster runner, but by nature, he was a little bit less bold. And so it says, then Simon Peter came, a little slow, but sure of himself, following him, and he went into the tomb. So no, uh, no reverence, no restriction. He wants in. He wants to see what's going on. And it says that he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. So Peter observes the details. He takes it all in. He begins to process, but no conclusion is given. It says, then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also and he saw. So he makes an observation. We assume he saw the same things that Peter saw, but he comes to a conclusion. It says that he Believed Doesn't tell us what he believed, but we're led to believe that he believed that Jesus was alive. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb and she saw. So now what she sees again, two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had laid. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So God sends encouragement, but she doesn't recognize the encouragement because she is drowning in her despair. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she supposing him to be the gardener. So now here's Mary's second assumption in the chapter. She assumes that he's the gardener. She says to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And so, uh, interesting, I don't know if you can relate to, to Mary here, but the very thing uh, that she thinks is taking something away from her is the very thing that she's looking for. Jesus is there, and J Jesus said to her, verse 16, Mary. And she turned and she said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then, and here's what I want you to pay attention to. These two verses are our text this morning. It says, then the same day, at evening being the first day of the week. It's interesting how something can be the same and brand new at the same time. It says, when the doors were shut, the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, that Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 
So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive any, or the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, quick contrast, Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print in his nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said the third time, Now peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The title of the message that I have for you this morning is 2020 Vision for 2020. And it comes from primarily John chapter 20, verse 20, the end of the verse where it says that then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They were glad when they saw the Lord. For me, this year is a milestone, not a major one, but it's the year that I have to renew my driver's license, which means that I will be taking an eye exam. I will stand approximately 15 feet away from small print. I will cover one eye and I will read to the teller a line that she has heard 7,000 times and doesn't even have to look behind her uh, to see what the letters are because she's heard it so many times. Now, uh, one thing that I'm fairly confident in is that I will ace, I will ace the visual test. And that is because I still can see. I'm not of that age yet where I have to squint or hold things far away or close uh, to me. I still have very uh, good, strong vision. I can read the fine print. I can still see a baby tick on my six-year-old's backside from across the room. I have very good vision. So I'm not surprised by the things that I can see. But I am sometimes surprised by the things that I can't see. And what I mean by that is that sometimes I will go early in the morning and I will look for my Yeti cup that I like to use because it keeps things hot. And I will know exactly where I left it, right on the corner of the first room table that is 16 inches wide by 12 inches deep. And I will look for it there. And when it's not there, I feel things tense up and I get a little anxious. And I will look and look and look and look and look, the dishwasher, the other counters, my bag, everywhere else where it might be, and I'll say, where's my cup? And then my wife will point and exactly 16 inches across the table in the other corner, no doubt, no lie, the other corner of the same table, there is my cup. But I didn't put it there, I put it here. But I couldn't see it because somebody moved it and it wasn't where I was looking for it. I don't know if you can relate to that. 
Here, here's another one. I'll come home and my wife will have worked all day organizing the entire upstairs. She will clean the upstairs hallway. She will do and put away seven loads of laundry. She will clean our bedroom meticulously and put everything away. And she will tirelessly work making it look good. Not because it matters so much to her, but because just she wants to make it a blessing to me. But I don't see it. Do you know why? Because somebody left the griddle out on the kitchen counter with dried egg on it dripping onto the countertop that's there. And that's what I see. And so I see that the griddle's out, and so I don't see what she did all day. I just see the one thing that's not done. Am I alone up here, or is this just confession time? You know, See, sometimes, sometimes it's not that we can't see clearly, because we can see clearly what's going on. But really, sometimes the issue is that we can't see completely. We just don't see the whole picture. Now, in the text that we saw, we have a series of characters, and each one of those characters has a set of circumstances, and inside those circumstances, all of them have something that they can see. And they can see very clearly. Their problem is that they just can't see completely. And so... The result of that is that all of these people are troubled, they're shaken, they're unsettled, some of them are sad, all of them, we are told, are afraid. These are the emotions that these disciples are feeling because of what they can see coupled with what they can't see, not being able to see the whole picture. Now, we only have a handful of people described, two of 12 apostles, one of six Marys, and probably there's, you know, over a hundred that are total uh, in this. I'm sorry, three of the 12 apostles, because you include Thomas in that, but there's four people in the text, but there's hundreds of people that are represented there in the room when Jesus appears. And every single one of these people are all feeling somewhat the same thing, because all of them in that day paid a very high price to follow Jesus. You, you couldn't just follow him from a distance. If you followed Jesus, you followed him. And so these people put their whole lives on hold. Many of them had left businesses. Many of them had left the stability of their lives. Some people had left their families, the 12 uh, apostles. We know that Peter had a wife. So for three years, we don't know how close he was with his wife or, or any of the... We just know that there was an upheaval in their lives and that it cost them dearly to follow Jesus. They had seen his miracles. They had heard his promises. They were convinced and persuaded 100% in their hearts and in their minds that he was the savior, the one who would reestablish the kingdom, that would deliver them from the Roman bondage, that he was the son of God. They believed that. But now they're in a situation where something happened that kind of crucified their expectations. Jesus was hung on a Roman cross His heart stopped beating and he was put into a tomb and he has now been there. This is the third day. And it seems like everything that they had hoped for is now coming to nothing. So they were trying to reconcile everything that they believed based on what they saw and heard with what now is the reality that they are experiencing and their thoughts trying to figure all of this out are like drones spinning around in their head with no place to land. And they're confused. Uh, Among them, there's Peter and Andrew and James and John. Peter, or Jesus, specifically called them to leave their families and their businesses to follow him 
at his side for those three and a half years. He said to them, you guys are going to sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a kingdom coming and you're going to hold a place in it. You're going to be near me and sit at my table. And now they're looking and they're trying to reconcile all of this. He he wasn't a deceiver. He didn't bear any of the marks. What happened? Are, Are we just a victim of circumstance? Did Rome win? Did the devil win? What's going on here? Why is this happening? Among them that were there was Matthew, the tax collector. Uh, Matthew paid an amazingly high price, but for him it was kind of like, I mean, it was kind of like betting the farm for him to follow Jesus. Because he was already an outcast in that he was a tax collector. But now he was going to be a tax collector who followed a controversial rabbi. And so he's got the potential of either redeeming his reputation if Jesus is who he says... Or of making it even worse if Jesus turns out to be a heretic. Because now I'm a tax collector and a heretic. My life is over. And he's sitting there going, what in the world is going on? Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. And this is absolutely remarkable to me. I think she's probably one of the most overlooked. For as much attention as she gets, she's probably one of the most overlooked characters in the New Testament. She probably paid a higher price than anyone to be a follower of Jesus. Because what God asked of her is that God asked her to sacrifice her reputation in a reputation-driven society for the entirety of her adult life. Because no one believed that Jesus was born of a virgin, that she was a virgin when she conceived. No one ever believed that, and everyone knew the story and the claim. And yet she was willing to carry that and following Jesus for all the time that she did. You know, sometimes you think about Mary. If you're a skeptic of the Christian faith, and you say that this is all stories and all that kind of thing, I would ask you to consider Mary. Just her person and the fact that she is still in this room as evidence of the fact that Jesus was who he said he was. Because I know something about the power of guilt And the power of guilt is so strong and its effects are so compounding that even if, even if you can hold in a secret, like Mary would have known that Jesus wasn't miraculously conceived because she would have been there, right, for the whole thing. If she knew that she was lying and she carried that with her for 33 years, she would not have the strength to sit in that room with those people because even if you keep the secret, the power of guilt pushes you away from the thing that reminds you of your fault because it is strong. But she's sitting there. Mary was there. All of them were there, hundreds of them, wondering what does all of this mean. Now, this isn't something that is um, uncommon. I don't know about you, but for me, I came to Jesus... Because, first of all, I needed forgiveness of my sins, I needed salvation, and I believed I needed, I came by faith and I came for salvation when I came to Jesus, I believed. But there was also a set of circumstances in my life that drove me to Jesus. I had messed it up really bad. And so along with my profession of faith and my coming to Christ by faith, I brought with me, whether I could say it or not, a series of expectations, There were things that I was hoping that Jesus would do in my life, putting it back together, renewing and restoring my mind, laying out some some framework of a future that I now had made look really dark with the decisions that I had made in my life. And so there were expectations, and and expectations are hopes. There were just things I hoped that he would do. And, And there have been times, and I hope you can relate to this. If not, I've got bad news for you. It's coming. 
that you will find yourself in a place where the expectations that you have of God in coming to him are going to be crucified right in front of you and they are going to seem like they're dead. And the circumstances that you find yourself in will be very real and it will seem to you in what you can see very clearly that maybe God lied to you, maybe God rejected you, maybe God is not for you, any other number of of thoughts that come along with that. And, And you'll be seeing very clearly because your circumstances are what they are. But I suggest to you that you will not be seeing completely, just like these guys. They could see clearly, but they couldn't see completely. Now, something happens in verse 19 that changes everything. Look again with me at what it says in verse 19. It says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, it says that Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Jesus comes into the room where they were, and they see him physically. He points to himself physically. We know that he is touchable. He is not an apparition. He's not a ghost or a figment of their imagination. He is there, real, in the flesh. And they see him with their eyes. And then it says, the result of that, At the end of the verse, verse 20, it says, Then the disciples were glad when, notice it, they saw the Lord. Now, I want you to think for a minute about what it doesn't say right there. It does not say that they were glad when time all of a sudden miraculously went backwards and they were able to relive the last three days and Peter was strong enough to fight off the Roman soldiers and Jesus was actually kept alive. doesn't say that. It doesn't say that they were glad when they closed the deal, when the merger happened in the business instead of being denied, when the offer was accepted on the house instead of being rejected. Then they were glad. doesn't say that. They were glad when the diagnosis changed. When the hospital called back and said, we actually mixed up the papers and you don't have X disease. It was somebody else and you're actually clean. You have a clean, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that they were glad when their teenagers finally realized that they were actually good parents and that they were fair and they came to their senses and woke up. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say they were glad when their spouse was healed of OCD. And, and somebody laughed, and, and I know who that is. <laughs> and, 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 and finally, they became sensitive to my needs. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say they, they were glad when they woke up one morning and suddenly they had lost 20 pounds and sugar didn't taste good anymore. Then they were glad. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say they were glad when their social anxiety went away and they weren't awkward around people anymore. They knew how to deal in, 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 in circumstances. It doesn't say that they were glad when they finally had a breakthrough in their efforts and they started making strides in their life goals and things started happening according to the see, see, here's the point, is that nothing changed. They weren't sitting on 12 thrones. Rome didn't go away. Nothing else, nothing outwardly in their situation changed from one minute to the next minute. Only one thing, one thing changed. And that is that they saw Jesus. They saw Jesus 
and they changed. They went from confused, shaken, afraid, sad, despairing, unknowing, to glad. One word, glad. Their countenance changed. Well, what exactly was it in seeing Jesus that changed their perspective? Notice a couple of things that it says there in the verse. It says, first of all, it says that Jesus was standing there. Look at it. It says, in the midst. It says that he was standing there in the midst. That is, in the middle. Part of what it was for them is that they saw that Jesus was actually in the middle of the very circumstances that they were despairing. See, a lot of times, the circumstances that we're going through, they bother us because they don't make sense to us. They bother us because they're uncomfortable to us. And we can't see how anything good could be coming from them or how God could be in them. But for them, when Jesus came into the middle of their circumstances, then they were glad, even though the circumstances didn't change, Jesus brought hope into the circumstances. He was standing on the very thing that was causing them great fear. And so for us, we go through things, and we can't see Jesus in the middle of it, and therefore we despair. We just see that there's an alcoholic parent that's making life miserable for just about anybody. And we don't see Jesus in it. But when we see or look for Jesus in the middle of that circumstance, we'll begin to see that on the outside edges of all the negative effects of what one person is doing, there's all kinds of things happening, all kinds of good fruit that we're not recognizing because we're concentrating on the one thing that's troubling us in it. Or for someone else, as the fruit of trust and surrender begins to yield itself in the life of someone who is waiting for God to bring someone into their life, waiting for someone, and they begin to see the fruit of what it is to trust him and to lean on him as they're waiting for the resolution of their desire. Then they begin to see Jesus in the middle of what they're going through. And if we stop and look for him, we'll find that Jesus is discovered in our discomfort. And it happens all the time. Jesus was in the midst. They saw that. It says also in verse 20, it says that he showed them his wounds. Isn't it interesting? He didn't show them his facial identity print. He didn't show them a miracle or his power. He didn't even pour out. He did, all he did is it says that he showed them his wounds. And something in seeing his wounds made them glad. Interesting. The wounds speak. See, they didn't realize it yet. They would realize it later. But his wounds represented what he bore on their behalf. And here's what that means. It means that if Jesus had not absorbed those wounds, then guess who would have? They would have. Because it says in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 12. Actually, no, that's not the verse. That's coming up in a minute. It says in Isaiah 51, it says that by his wounds, we are healed. It says that he was bruised for our iniquities, meaning that the wounds that he bore were actually intended for us, but he stood in front of us and he bore the wounds that we were actually to receive. It's part of what Jesus does for his people. That's Isaiah chapter 52, verse 12. And it says that we will not 
go out with haste, nor by flight, for the Lord will go before you. Here's why. It says that the Lord God of Israel will be your rearward or your rear guard, meaning that he goes before you. That's a shield. And that he stands behind you, that's your rear guard. Meaning that he, part of what he does is he's constantly absorbing things that are intended towards our harm. And so the circumstances that they were in, these disciples, that they were despairing over because they couldn't make sense of them. What they couldn't understand is that those circumstances were necessary in order for them to be protected from what they didn't even know would have hit them. And I'm amazed at that aspect of our Savior. Do you realize that sometimes the very circumstances that you hate in your life, the things that you despair of the most, are actually God's protection over your life of other things that you can't see and don't understand? Nine days before Christmas, during the holiday bustle, it was my day off, and I had about 4,000 things that I had to check off my list. And uh, along the way, I thought, okay, I'll stop at Home Depot. I have some leftover things that I can return and cash in. And so I pulled into Home Depot parking lot, and I began to go through the different, the 7,000 different receipts and try to match them with the items that I was going to return. And I dropped my keys, you know where this is going, right in the console while I did all this little paperwork. I proceeded to go into the store, lock my car, and go into the store, do my business, picked up a couple of things that I needed, and as I came out and reached for what wasn't there, I looked through the window and I saw right on the console, right in the middle, a big glob of keys just taunting me, staring at me, saying, we're in here and you're out there and it's cold and you're carrying things and you got nothing. (laughs) So, you know. Okay, this is not a good time for this. So I call my wife and I say, hey, are you, she, I knew she was out. I said, are you anywhere near Route 9? She says, yes, I am. I'm actually right down the road. I said, great, could you bring my keys? She goes, one problem. So I couldn't find my keys this morning, so I took your key to my car and I don't know where the other keys are. They're somewhere in the house. And I was like, ooh, you know. So I was like, okay, how, can you go get them? She's like, yeah, I'll go get them, you know. So, so I'm like, oh man. So I'm standing here and I'm embarrassed and I'm, you know, I, you know, I don't want to walk around the store again with all this stuff. I don't want to leave it there. So I'm sitting there, and I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to call. I know a sheriff. He's a friend of mine. He comes to the church here. I'm going to call him and just see if they still do that. You know, I know modern cars. It makes it harder, you know. So I call him up, and he answers the phone, and I told him what happens. And he says, I'm going to have someone there in, like, a minute. He goes, it'll be either us or, or Poughkeepsie Town. He goes, um, and he says, as long as I'm not a Mercedes or a BMW, I can do it. And I said, oh, thank God. I'm not one of those preachers, you know, yet. No, no. <laughs> it's just a Pontiac. Can you get into a Pontiac? Oh, yeah, we can get into a Pontiac all day, you know. So we hang up. He calls me back a minute later. He says they're on their way. And then he says this as I'm going, God, today? He says, one more question. He goes, is that Bible study still on for tonight that you're teaching? Because I was going to come. And I went, I don't know. See, I completely forgot about the Bible study that night. The arrangements had been made three weeks prior. It was not part of my normal routine, and it was not anywhere in my plans at all. This would have been a high-profile error. Bad. We're talking in the county office building, Bible study, bad. Bad, 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 bad. I went, oh, 
thank you, Jesus, that I locked my keys in my car today. (laughs) Because if it wasn't for Wittick saying, oh, by the way, is that Bible study still on? I would have felt for three months like, like quitting, you know, this whole thing. Thank you. See, sometimes the things that are so frustrating to us that we can't understand, God is using for our very salvation. They saw his wounds, they were glad. Now listen, as we turn the dial on a brand new year, the vision that we need for 2020 as we go into it is not how we have a better marriage or how we fix our ailing business or how we reach our kids that don't understand us and we don't understand them, or how we navigate health issues or practical decisions that need to be made or financial things and struggles that we're going through. That's not the vision that we need. And the reason we don't need vision for that is because he's got that. But what we do need vision for is we need a fresh vision of Jesus in our midst. That's the vision that we need as we go into 2020. You say, what does that mean that we need to see Jesus? Because I don't know anyone who's ever had Jesus show up and say, hey, look at these things. Maybe if he did show up in my house and say that to me, it would help me a little bit. But that, that's not really realistic. What does it mean for me to see Jesus? The answer is given to us down in verse 29 after Jesus has a brief interaction with doubting Thomas, the one who uh, said, I'm not going to believe unless I actually touch him and put my finger in his hand. I'm not going to believe. What does Jesus say to Thomas there in verse 29? Read it again. It says that Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. See, belief or faith is equivalent to sight or vision when it comes to seeing Jesus. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says it like this. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, I cannot see it with my physical eyes by the revealed and expressed will of God because he said it will be by faith and that without faith it is impossible to please God. But when I embrace by faith what he has done and he has said, according to the evidence that's been presented, then that is equivalent to sight, that it's the evidence of things that are not seen. And here's what that means. It means that faith is not an emotion, it's a decision. And it enables me to see what's invisible. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. We believe. 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul says again, he says, while we look not at the things which are seen physically, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. So there is a vision that happens on the faith level that supersedes the intellect and the visual. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27, talks about the faith that Moses had, and it describes it this way. It says that by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. Endured means that he pressed through difficult circumstances. How? As seeing him who is invisible. 
He didn't see God, but he saw through eyes of faith that God was with him, and he endured, and he saw victory. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 encourages us in the same way as we seek to, to, to press through. It says that we are looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so there is a vision that comes not with the seeing of the natural eye, but with the seeing of the believing eye that God gives and that we embrace when we choose to believe. We say, well, how is that done? Because I'm still having a hard time bridging the gap between the physical and the spiritual, the visible and the immaterial. How do I do that? Well, a couple of things that, that, that the text gives us insight in as we close. Here's, here's number one, and this one's huge. If you want to know what it means to live by faith and to see God in faith and to know gladness in seeing him in faith, number one, if you're taking notes, these are the takeaways. You want to write this down is that you need to toss your script. You need to talk, take your script. You know, the script, that's that part where you have written out what's going to happen in your life way down into the future, that this is going to happen. And by page 7, I'm married. And by page 12, I'm a millionaire. And by page 14, I have three houses in different parts of the world. It, you know, that script. You know what I'm talking about? You take that script... And you throw that script out the window. Notice what Jesus says to his disciples when he comes in. The first words uh, out that, that he gives to them. Um, there in verse 19. No, I'm sorry. Verse 21. It says, so Jesus said to them again, peace to you. Watch this. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. As the Father sent me, I'll... In other words, here, listen, and this is a secret. You need to know this is that when you asked Jesus to come into your heart, you were not asking him to be a passenger on your plans. Would you come and help me accomplish my life goals? That's not what happened. You became his possession, and your life is now an extension of his plan. And what that means is that he writes the script for our lives, not us. He says, as the Father sent me, so I now send you. Jesus was interrupted severely. He was in glory. And Father said, hey, I've got something for you. And Jesus gave himself to the Father's will. And in that, he received the joy and acceptance. And see, for you and I, part of experiencing the peace that he speaks of and the gladness of knowing him, is saying, okay, Lord, I trust you that if you're able to stand upon the grave, then you're able to navigate the circumstances of my life. And so I can toss the script of how I think things should go, and I can trust you to bring it to pass according to your will and your timing. The second thing that will help us to see with eyes of faith is given to us in verse 22. In verse 22, it says there that when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If we're going to know the gladness of what it means to see him by faith, then it's essential that we receive the gift that he's given. That we receive the Holy Spirit that was poured out. Listen to the promise that Jesus gave to his disciples uh, just a, a, a few days before these events. It's John chapter 14, verse 16. He said that I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Now here's why that's so important. 
is because the thing that made them glad was the realization that Jesus was there. And Jesus is telling us that when you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that God says that he will give to those that ask for it, that it is in you a sense of his presence constantly. That though you can't see him with your eyes, his spirit is dwelling in you and his presence is living in you. And thus you know that he's there and it enables you to see what's invisible because it's from the inside and experience the gladness of knowing that he's in control, that he's standing in the center of what's taking place in your life. So we must receive what it is that he's given to us and we receive in the asking. And then the third thing that we must do if we're going to see by faith, is that we must feed faith. Notice verse 31, final verse of the chapter, as uh, as it closes out, as Jesus or John finishes his testimony. He says, these things are written, the things contained in the gospel of John, that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. Listen to what John says there. He says, I have written these things, So that the intention, the purpose, the reason this is written for you to read it is so that you might believe and that then in believing you'll find the life, the gladness, the vision in his name. There's a mystery here that Paul explains in Romans chapter 10 verse 17. And here's what Paul says there. He says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Meaning that God has made it so that this book is not white pages with black ink, but that there's something living and powerful contained in the words that are recorded that when I read them and allow them in with an open heart and let them work in my life, they actually have power to produce faith that causes me to believe and thus see the invisible and experience gladness regardless of what's going on within my life outwardly. And so I feed faith by reading the word of God and saying, I believe you, God, enough to give myself to doing the work of reading the word. To allow it to have its place within my life. I've talked to a lot of people uh, over the past week or two that have said to me that they can't wait to close the door on 2019. That it's just been a really rough year and they're looking for a new year. Listen, I, I don't know where you're at on that spectrum of things, the outgoing year and the incoming year. But here's what I need to tell you. It's kind of a news flash. It may be good news or bad news. Is that when you wake up on Thursday morning you're going to feel a whole lot like you did on Wednesday night. (laughs) Because nothing's going to change. Okay, you're going to wake up and it's just going to, the the calendar's going to change, the number's going to change, but but a new year is not going to bring a new set of circumstances for you or, or change your life in some way. It is going to be exactly the same as it was when you went to bed. Now, listen, what can be different and what will make a difference in 2020 is if you make a decision that, Lord, I'm going to, set my heart and my feet and my mind and my life towards seeing you this year. Experiencing your presence in my life, experiencing your grace, experiencing your word, experiencing you leading my steps as my shepherd, my shield and my rear guard, looking for you in the midst of the circumstances that I'm in, not kicking against them and constantly trying to change them. 
yielding my script to you and seeking you for what you have for my life rather than being frustrated at you because you're not doing what I think that you should. This year, I'm going to give myself to you. That will make all the difference. See, Jesus' presence made them glad, not because the circumstances changed, but because it meant the story isn't over. Story's not over. Jesus is working. He's in it. And so I ask you, who are you this morning? There's four people in the text, and I believe there's four people here in this room right now. There's Mary the pessimist. Where is he? He's dead. I know he's dead. He's laid somewhere else. What's going on? If you're the gardener, tell me where you've laid him so I can come and get him. The pessimist is the one that always sees the negative in every situation. Can't see that there could be anything else going on. Is that I see what's going on and I know what's going on. This is, this is bad. Are you Mary, the pessimist? Or maybe you're Peter, the detective. You walk right in, you're bold, and you want to see the evidence, and you're looking, and you see the napkin, and you see there's a church, and you see there's people, and you see there's changed people around. I don't know what to do with all this. The jury's out. I'll figure it out later. Peter, the detective. Or maybe you're here, and you're Thomas, the pragmatist. Church, Jesus, the Bible, faith, that's all ethereal. I, I don't know. If I see Jesus, if I see some miracle, if something happens, are you Thomas the pragmatist? Or are you John the joyful? He walks into the tomb. He looks around. says, Jesus isn't here. And if Jesus isn't here, it means one of two things. He's either gone or he's alive. I believe. That's where gladness is. It's the decision and the choice to have faith. And if you're here this morning, in whatever place you're in, you could be a believer in Jesus already, or you could be a non-believer in Jesus. But if you're here this morning in either of those camps, and you find yourself far from God, I've got good news for you. Is that if you will take one step towards him, just one, he will bridge the gap of the rest of the distance and meet you right there. And that step is simply just opening up your heart and saying, you know what, God, I've been doing way too much on my own. I've been leaning way too much upon my own resources, my own abilities, my own understandings. But this morning, I choose to come back to you. I choose to put my faith in you. I choose to believe. I choose to trust you for things that I cannot do myself and to lay down my attempt to control what only you can do. Father, I pray this morning over this great congregation And I pray in Jesus' name that you, Lord, that you would be the author and finisher of our faith. That this day, this moment, God, you would take our eyes off of whatever they are on and you would set them firmly upon yourself. That we would see you, Jesus, risen, standing, victorious, controlled, functioning. Your will is good. Your heart is towards us. And I pray, Father, that you would reach each of us right where we are right now and that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. You would let us again breathe of your presence. We ask that you'd renew us and revive us. We ask, Lord, that you would give us fresh faith and fresh eyes. You'd give us a renewed hunger for your word and for your truth. You would give us a love for you and for one another. And that in every other way, Lord, we'd possess vision this year. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your kindness who you are. Lead us now, Lord, and hear our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.
Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.